If you've got a Bible, start finding Ephesians chapter 2. That's going to be our anchor text. I'm going to jump around to a lot of different scriptures today, and I encourage you to not get stressed about that. If you're new to your Bible, you don't have to find all these passages, but you can sort of jot them down and make sure that I didn't make anything up later, right? But we're going to be anchored in Ephesians 2. In a lot of ways, this sermon is like a ride in public transportation in a big city in a foreign country. And what I mean is, you don't want to get off at the wrong stop today, okay? You need to stay on the bus till we get to the end. If you get off before we get to the destination, you're probably going to get mugged, okay? So please, please stay with me to the end, and I think God's going to do something special in our church. I want to start with a really troubling set of sentences, right? These are three sentences that open up a paragraph that I found in a book I read on sabbatical, and I want to read these three sentences that I find disturbing. So here we go. This author writes, let's get something straight right from the beginning. If you do not act like a Christian, you are not a Christian. Yes, I am willing to die on that hill. What do you think about that? Like, is that crazy? Is that pharisaical nonsense? Like, you almost picture reading those three sentences, an old curmudgeon watching Kirk Cameron movies and yelling at kids on skateboards, <laughs> right? Is that, is that like works-based, legalistic, dead fundamentalism? I don't know. Let, let me read the rest of the paragraph and let's think about it. He goes on to say this, there is no such thing as an identity that does not act. If you do not treat people, especially spouses or other family members, from and with Christian virtues, virtues like peace and patience, love, there is serious doubt that you are a Christian. And no, I don't believe in salvation by works. But I do know that faith involves attachment to and participation with Christ. And if that's the case, you can't be attached to Christ without acting in accordance with his character to some large extent. In identity informs behavior. This is bracing. This feels like a cold shower. These are sobering words. In this room, there might be some that are ready to say, okay, I agree. And a lot of people that are ready to say, I disagree. Let's find that book and burn it. <laughs> so let, let, me, let me approach this with a thought experiment, right? Pretend with me, if you will, that my wife of 20 years, Nancy, comes to you and says, me and Josh need marriage counseling right now. And you are like, all right, I'm down. I'm your huckleberry. Come to the house. Nancy drags me to your house and we show up. I walk through the door, take off my jacket and I am wearing a I heart my wife t-shirt, right? That's a positive sign, right? I break out my I heart my wife coffee mug. And I proceed to tell you at the beginning of marriage counseling, I don't think we need marriage counseling because I love my wife, She's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm crazy about my wife. In fact, I tell my wife every morning when she wakes up and every night before we go to bed, I love you, honey. Well, you're starting to feel pretty good about marriage counseling, right? You're like, all right, this is gonna go okay. This is within my skill set to help this couple. 
But then Nancy starts to talk. And Nancy says, yeah, it's true that he tells me every day that he loves me. But here's what you need to know. I don't feel safe with him. Because he yells at me. I don't like to be around him because he bullies me. He's constantly belittling me. He's constantly calling me names. He's constantly withholding affection from me. He tells me he loves me, but with his touch and with his time, he communicates that he doesn't want to be around me. And worst of all, he disappears every night and doesn't come home till six in the morning. I think he's seeing other women. Now, you have a a moment to decide what you're going to do in that counseling appointment, right? You can stand up for me and say, well, Nancy, obviously he loves you. Look at his t-shirt. Or you can do what I hope you would do. You can stand to your feet and grab me by the collar and look me in the eye and say, you can say you love her all you want, but none of your action looks like love. And you can rebuke me and you can demand that my identity as a husband shapes my action as a husband. We live in a really weird moment to talk about what it means to be a Christian. A weird moment. Is a Christian an evangelical voting block? Is a Christian just sort of a demographic box that you check? Like, yes, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, because my mom was a Methodist. My dad was a Baptist. Is a Christian somebody that just sort of has the right doctrines? Like, if you believe in the Trinity, you're automatically a Christian. Is a Christian somebody that's been moved with a lot of emotion during an altar call? Right? You were at a worship service and the pastor was preaching and he told you to bow your heads and close your eyes and somebody played something really cool on a synthesizer and they said something like, hey, if you want to be blessed and not go to hell, raise your hands. And I did that, so now I'm a Christian. What is it that actually makes a Christian? Well, I'll tell you two things it's not. It's not intellectual belief alone And it's not sentimental feelings alone. Here's how James puts it. (laughs) James chapter two, listen to these words. This is freaky. This should freak you out. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. It's rhetorical because you can't. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Hey, look look at me. What that means at the very least is Christianity is not just mere doctrinal belief. It's not less than the right doctrines, but you can be like, yep, believe in the incarnation. Yep, believe in the virgin birth. Yeah, I believe in the resurrection. And you know what? You have a lot in common with the devil. He believes all that. He's like, yeah, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I I was there. But he doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't obey Jesus. Or you can go into sentimental Christianity and you can say, hey, there was a moment where I felt something and man, yeah, I think Jesus is pretty cool. And I responded to an altar call, but but listen to Jesus's words in Luke 8. This is also sobering. He says, and the ones that fell on the rock He's using the parable of the sower and the seed, and he says that there's seed sown and it falls on different soil, and some of the soil was rocky. He says, The ones that fall on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. 
That sounds like an altar call at youth camp. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for those who fell among the thorns, they're those who hear and they go on their way. As they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and their fruit does not mature. And as for those that were in the good soil, those are those who hear the word. And in hearing the word, hold it fast in a good, in an honest and good heart. And listen, bear fruit with patience. So here's the big idea that we're going to talk about today. And it's a difficult big idea, but it's an important big idea. It's this. Your identity informs directs and shapes your behavior or it's not an identity. True Christian belief is a unified whole. Faith includes truth that renews the mind, beauty that redirects the affections or the love of your heart, and obedience that does slowly and painfully and often imperfectly reform the behavior. See, in this moment where we keep inviting Jesus into our hearts and we think that that's the end-all, be-all of Christianity, we miss that every sermon in the New Testament where people become Christians, what they're told to do is twofold. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. What do you do with this thing that is faith? You repent and you're baptized. Repentance, what is that? Well, it's turning from being your own boss your own God, you getting to call balls and strikes to Jesus as Lord. The earliest Christian confession that formed the church for the first 350 years was simple. It was three words. Jesus is Lord, which meant a lot of things. It meant something politically. It meant something socially, but it meant something deeply personal to those Christians. It meant Jesus was the boss. As they got baptized, they were baptized into Christ's death and raised into his life, which meant that their core identity was found in Jesus, being united with Christ and added to his body. So let, let me take you on a quick journey through Ephesians chapter 2 to talk about this difficult tension between faith and works, or identity and action. Paul writes this to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, and it's so important that we hear these words. Starting in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the crown jewel of the Christian life, right? Like, this is our message. This is our delight. We are grace people. We're a grace church that preaches the gospel of grace. We love grace. If you cut us, I hope we bleed grace. Can I get an amen? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace is amazing. Grace is the best news in the entire universe. Grace 
is the foundation of your identity as a Christian. Here's what grace means. It means you could never get to God and you were made to be with God. Why are you bummed out when you put all your hope in money or marriage or in freedom or in sex or in a thousand other things because none of those created things can name you or satisfy you? You have an infinite abyss in your soul that can only be filled by being in relationship with your infinite creator. But because of sin, we can't get to him. Rituals don't get you to him. Being a good boy doesn't get you to him. Being a good girl doesn't get you to him. Keeping the law doesn't get you to him. You can't get to God, so God does something completely scandalous out of love. And the Bible says this again and again and again. Certainly it was for his glory, but it tells us again and again, because he loved you, he sent his son to come towards you, to die for you to pay the penalty of your sin, to be raised from the dead, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to pour out the Holy Spirit so that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue can become a part of the family of God. Grace is amazing. Grace means God gets all the credit if you're a Christian. All the credit, which means a prideful Christian is like the most ridiculous, confusing thing in the whole world. You don't get to boast in anything. It's like, God gave you this gift that you didn't deserve. It was his work. It was his miracle. It was something that shows off who God is. And listen, we do not want to jump the shark on that end of the gospel. Somebody said, what does it mean to jump the shark? I think it was Charlie. He doesn't understand pop culture. It's a Happy Days reference. Happy Days was a pretty great show. And then their ratings started to fall and they set up a scene where Fonzie enters a ski competition and he goes off a ramp over shark-infested water. It was literally the dumbest scene in the history of American television. Okay, listen, I don't want you to jump the shark on grace. I want grace to be the great delight of your life that you didn't earn it, and it's not something you figured out, but God in his overflowing love, God as a bottomless well of mercy, he just loves you for his own sake. And he chose you and he placed his love on you and he added you to Jesus. And even faith, you don't get to even boast in that. Like, well, I got faith and my stupid neighbors don't. Are you kidding me? Faith is a gift. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And if we miss that, we'll fall into legalism and works-based righteousness and trying to earn and we'll become Pharisees and we won't love each other and we won't live honest lives and we won't worship because if you get credit for your salvation, then you might as well set up a little shrine to yourself. Grace should move you. The Father loves you. And in the finished work of Jesus, guess what? He says the same thing he says about his son, about you. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. So listen, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But grace never stays alone. If it's real grace, if it's a real identity shift, there's fruit. No fruit, no roots. We're in a series called Rooted. The root is all grace. But again and again in the New Testament, we're commanded to bear fruit. We're commanded to inspect fruit. We're commanded to expect fruit. 
We're commanded to help cultivate fruit. So listen to the second part of that, Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. He did it, not you, not me. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Identity creates action. And if there's no action, there's a serious question about identity. Our new identity is to be lived and cultivated and practiced and make no mistake. It takes time to grow up into who you already are as one that's in Christ. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. But listen to the things that scripture says about action. I'll mention just a few. I had about 75 scriptures I was going to read today. And then I thought, maybe that's a bad idea. First time back, having to get fired for preaching a four-hour sermon. So let me just give you a few. How about Jesus? Jesus says, John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. It's not sentimentality. Don't obey Jesus. It doesn't reflect that you love Jesus. John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, how did Jesus love us? With sentimentality in heaven? No, with sacrificial action. And listen to this. By this, this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not because you have a fish on your car, okay? Not because, not because you attend a worship gathering on a Sunday morning or listen to Christian music or a thousand other things that we do. How will people know you're a Christian? Because your identity has formed action in Christ. You've been rescued, redeemed, sealed by the Holy Spirit. What does that produce? Love. Sentimental love? No real love that costs you a lot. How about Jesus in Matthew chapter five? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And here's an identity passage if there ever was one. This is Colossians. The whole thing is about identity, your old identity, your new identity, forming action. Colossians chapter three, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's what he's saying. Hey, you know why you used to live in sexual immorality and covetousness and greed and Why you deceived each other? Because your actions reflected your identity as a child of darkness. Put off the old life. Grow up into who you are in Jesus. Practice these new things. Put to death these old things. Identity creates action. I'll give you just a couple more. Paul tells Christian women that the way that they should adorn themselves 
is with good works. Man, the early church took this big time seriously. A lot of good historians think that some of the most dramatic forms of growth in the early church in the first 300 years in the midst of persecution was because women just loved Jesus and lived out their faith in the marketplace like crazy. Women that were wealthy told women that worked in their households as slaves about Jesus, and women that were slaves in the household told women that were wealthy about Jesus. They were willing to suffer and to travel all over the world as their jobs, careers, and families led them to open their mouths, tell people about Jesus, and people listened because their lives looked like Jesus. How about for people with money? This is a big one, right? This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Listen to this. They are to do good. Not just have good intentions, they're to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen, I literally could do this with you all day. The New Testament is banging the drum that the grace of God that gives you a new identity in Jesus leads to a life that's not like a microwave burrito, slow, easy, and cheap, okay? but a life nonetheless that intentionally with the help of the Holy Spirit in community grows to reflect the work and character of Jesus in ever greater ways. And the Bible would tell you again and again, if there's no fruit, there's no root. And here's what kind of blew my mind. I, I pulled literally every passage. I say I pulled. I, I asked one of our interns to do it for me. He's a smart intern. He's super smart. We're all going to work for him one day. And I asked that intern, I said, hey man, I want you to pull all the New Testament passages on judgment. And here's what's so crazy. God so believes that identity forms action, then again and again in the New Testament, we see multiple places. In fact, most of the instances of judgment on the last day, at least at the beginning, are on the basis of God evaluating the works of our lives. Is that because you can earn salvation? Nope. Nope. It's because if you're born again, there's going to be fruit. So for my reformed friends that are like, hey man, I thought we liked, I thought our boy was Luther. Josh, what about your boy Calvin, man? Well, those guys had actually read their Bibles. Here's what Luther wrote. But he who does not, but he, let me back up, but he does not truly believe if works do not follow his faith. Martin Luther. What about JC, not Jesus Christ, John Calvin? <laughs> he writes, it is impossible to be a believer and not a doer. Impossible. And in his commentary on James, he writes, this only <laughs> this only he means that faith without the evidence of good works is vainly pretended because fruit ever comes from the living root of a good tree. So let me take a second and shout like as loud as I can what I'm not saying. Okay, here's what I'm not saying. Here's what the Bible's not saying. One, it's not saying 
that perfection in this life is going to happen. It's not saying that. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7 that he still struggles with sin to such a degree that he says, wretched man that I am. He says, I don't do the thing I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. This is the Apostle Paul. A lot of theologians try to argue that he's talking about his life before a Christian. I guess it's because they can't be honest about their lives as Christians. Because in the text, what Paul is saying is that he loves Jesus, but he still has this war raging in his flesh that wants to rebel against Jesus. He points back to grace, the need for ongoing grace. You're not going to be perfect in this life. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be moments that are setbacks. There's going to be times where you sin. Man, I can say that with Paul. I've been following Jesus for over 20 years, and I'm often baffled by the sinful ways that I relate to people. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do you have any idea how hard that is for me? That's hard. That's hard for everybody. I think it's extra hard for some people. I think I am wired to kick enemies. Every sport I like involves bleeding. (laughs) I fall so short in loving my wife like Jesus loves the church. I fall so short, man. I'm so selfish. My heart is so wired to be fearful and greedy and lay a hold of things and experiences to try to satisfy my soul. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on and all the ways that I'm so frustrated that I'm 40 years old and still struggling with these temptations. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about a fight. We're talking about a sobriety of life where you don't just punt on holiness. We're talking about a willingness to follow Jesus. We're talking about honesty with yourself and honesty with your community and a willingness to get help. We're not talking about perfection in this life. In addition, we're not talking about something you can do in human effort alone. Action's not something you just work up because you try super hard, right? Hebrews tells us that we need each other. Listen to this, Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like, we're doing group connect today. It's not because we're like, hey, man, we got to figure out something to do with our staff. We're doing group connect today because it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to have your identity form your action in isolation. You need people to remind you of who you are. You need people to call you on your sin. You need people to do life with you. You need people that are like, hey man, like, no, you actually can't treat your wife like that. You need people that gospel you. We're to submit one to another and we're to submit to our leaders. That's in the Bible. Why? Because you can't do this life of formation seriously by yourself on an island. It ain't just you and Jesus. In addition, it's not something that you do in your own effort, even in community. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Let me give you just a few examples. God wants to form the character of Christ in you. So does he, like Pharaoh, tell you to make bricks and not give you straw? No, man, he wouldn't do that. He's not a Pharaoh. He's a father. 
So he tells you that you're to take seriously obedience in this world. And what does he do to help you? I'll, I'll list a few things. How about filling you with the Holy Spirit? That's kind of big. <laughs> Never leaving you alone, always being with you, always willing to convict you and guide you and encourage you and gospel you. How about giving you, how about giving you the blessing and benefit of his word so that you can see what God's like and know what he wants from you? That's such a blessing. If my my wife wrote me a letter where she poured out her heart and described who she is and her desires for our marriage, and I was like, I'm just going to stick that in the drawer. I'll get to that. (laughs) He'd be like, dude, you're an idiot. The living God has communicated himself to you. And I know we live in a culture where we, we, we've got what's called pluralistic. We've got pluralistic interpretive fear, meaning like we think, oh, there's no one interpretation of any part of the Bible. Everybody's got an opinion, so I'm just not going to believe any of it. That's hogwash. There's good, there's good interpretation, and the Bible is, in its very nature as God's word, understandable with help in community. It's not vague. Read it. God wants to help you. How about prayer? God wants to talk with you and listen to you. (laughs) How about communion, a means of grace? Every week we get to drink this wine and eat this bread and repent of our sins and be strengthened by grace. How about church, the preaching of the word and gathering together and having brothers and sisters that are willing to lay hands on you? This is not something you do in your own strength. God has provided the grace to help us grow up into the grace he's given us. Right? So let me close with this. What does it mean? I'll just give you two things. It means a lot of things. I'll give you two. One, I realize this is my first week back and I should probably pull punches and be very careful, but I love you a lot. And I don't want to give an account to Jesus for being a crummy pastor that told you what you wanted to hear. So let me say something that's really hard to hear, but really true. You can't harden your heart to Jesus's teachings and call yourself his follower. Listen, I'm not saying sinless perfection. I'm saying you can't say, well, here's the teachings of Jesus throughout the New Testament on sex. I just don't like it. You can't do that and call yourself a Christian. You can't have sex outside of the covenant of marriage unrepentantly and habitually and just say, well, you know, it's, I got to express myself and call yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian if you unrepentantly, habitually throw God's word on the ground and do whatever you want to do. I love you so much. You can't cohabitate with your boyfriend, girlfriend and call yourself a Christian. You're sinning. God's word is clear about the sanctity and the covenant of marriage. You can't cheat on your wife. You can't cheat on your husband. And the struggle is real, but you can't just give up and say, well, there's no way I'll ever overcome porn, so I'm just going to give myself over to it. You've got to fight. You've got to fight with the means of grace he's given you. You can't ignore the teachings of scripture on money and call yourself a Christian. I know there's all that generosity stuff, but that's just not for me. <laughs> Who the heck do you think you are? What do you think your baptism meant? Baptized into Christ's death, raised into his life. Here's the confession. 
do you confess Jesus as Lord? Yes, except for my, for my money. It's just hypocrisy. It's a joke. Follow the teachings of Jesus, except on forgiveness. I'll forgive people like if they really are sorry. <laughs> Jesus is the one that said, if you don't forgive, if you don't forgive your neighbor from your heart, you will not be forgiven. Again, is that works-based righteousness? Nope, that's identity-forming action. If you know what you've been forgiven, you will forgive. <laughs> you're not allowed to be a bitter Christian. Well, now you're just being legalistic. No. It's not legalism to desire to please the one that died on a cross for you to purchase you from hell. Secondly, and lastly, this means you and me have to take our spiritual formation way more seriously. Christianity is not a hobby. <laughs> Can we just pause there for just a second? Dude, it's the dumbest hobby if it's your hobby. If you're not serious about this, like if Jesus is not life and death to you, and this is just something you do because you're a Midwesterner and like... You need something as a placeholder before brunch. Stop. Give me a break, man. For 2,000 years, people have been willing to die. And today, people are willing to die for the blessing of being able to gather together and receive God's word and break bread. This is not a hobby, man. Don't, don't be trite with things that are holy. It's not a hobby. Come on, it's not a hobby. Don't play at this. And it doesn't mean you have to have a sour face and only wear camel skin clothes. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you got to move to a compound. But I'm saying if you're really a Christian, what's more important than you seriously and passionately pursuing the things of God and taking seriously the teachings of Jesus? This is life and death stuff. Let me read Philippians. Paul writes, uh, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The things we're talking about are things that are worth some fear and trembling. We're not talking about whether or not you should buy a timeshare or not buy a timeshare. We're talking about things that are eternal and significant and holy. They're worth fear and trembling. And what's great about that verse is God's, here's, here's what it basically says. God's working. God's working. So work it out. That sounds a lot like identity in action, doesn't it? Dallas Willard once wrote, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And I think there's a lot of us in this church that think that grace is opposed to effort. It's not. If you're not serious about your spiritual formation, who is going to be? And listen, as I close, I love you so much. I want you to be formed and me to be formed to look more like Jesus. As we close this thing, 
the world needs Christians that act like Christians. L- l- listen, please, just, I'm, I'm, I'm closing, but I really want you to hear this. Being as cool as non-Christians means nothing. Perfecting church marketing in our cultural moment means nothing. Crafting a rad worship experience that's cool and relevant, that doesn't call people to repentance and faith, that shapes identity and creates action, means nothing. In our cultural moment, the difference between the people of God and the people that don't follow Jesus, it's so mingled and confused. And listen, I'm not talking about becoming sad and dour and legalistic. I'm just saying, let's actually take this faith seriously and honestly. Let's, by God's grace, help stir one another up to love and to good deeds.